the um, manager of the bookshop has said, can I say a few words about um, this book of mine on Brownlow North? I really made a boo-boo when I called it Brownlow North. Brownlow, who's ever heard of Brownlow North? So um, I should have called it the making of an evangelist because it's the story of a, a rake, um, a hunter, man who lived for himself and how the Lord humbled him and saved him and then gradually began to draw out from him uh, the, the most wonderful awakening ministry that Scotland saw in, in the 19th century. Uh, it's a delightful story, a delightful history, and uh, I, I just wish um, it had had a, a better title than I had given it. Let's read the Word of God uh, from... First uh, Kings chapter 19. First Kings 19, I'm reading from the uh, New King James. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also, if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. When he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die. He said, it's enough. Now, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food, Forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord but the Lord was not in the wind and after the wind an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake and after the earthquake a fire 
But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees haven't bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. May God bless the reading of his holy and infallible word. I want to speak to you on depression, the enemy of assurance. I want to analyze it and suggest the cure. We read here of Elijah collapsing under, I'll still call it a juniper tree, in what seems to be a depressed state. It's a big word. It's a big umbrella word, this word depression. It has a long ancestry in the Bible that goes back to Cain and to Jonah and some of the psalmists. And even Paul describes a time when he was downcast our bodies had no rest. We were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. The downcast. I want to begin by opening up the subject of what depression is not. I want to make five observations about this. Firstly, not all the sorrow a Christian knows can be dubbed depression. Not all the pressures and burdens that Paul informs us that he and his fellow laborers knew that we can say they were going through depression. Much sadness is perfectly wholesome and normal and necessary. A Christian knows much of the tragedy of human life he is aware of the sadness of his own kinfolk, his own children, his own parents, the griefs that have come into their lives. And when we meet a stranger, sit next to him on a plane, and we talk together, he opens up, and we are aware that there are few, if any, who haven't private sorrows. It's a groaning world we live in. Secondly, there's a certain essential solemnity about the Christian. 
because we are living out our lives in a fallen world and we know the evil influence of remaining sin and our own egos. That means that Christian joy in the world is never nonchalance. It never becomes superficial merriment. The problems are too deep. The activities of the God of this world are too devastating. The Christian's emotional state is informed and wise and structured by many awarenesses. Our grapevine amongst ourselves works very effectively. And so every Christian is characterized by a certain gravity, a seriousness of bearing and deportment before God. Thirdly, it is prescriptive for a Christian that throughout his life he's characterized by a sorrow for sin, for the evil that he would not do, but he does, and the good that he would do, but does not. You think of the Sermon on the Mount and that immensely logical and comprehensive description of uh, the Christian life. And it begins with those familiar beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn. They shall be comforted. The Christian is someone who is discontented with his own standard of life. He knows that at many times he violates the wishes of his own saviour. He's a man of genuine sorrow. His heart has been broken by uh, those cruel words that he said to those who love him the most and whom he loves the most. And he groans and he thinks of people he's hurt in the past. I wonder where she is today. I wonder how things are going with her today. I hurt her. The Spirit of God illuminates his mind and convicts him of sin and convicts him of righteousness and convicts him of judgment. He knows a grief. He knows an awareness that he's failed a Savior who suffered because he loved him and hung on the cross and wouldn't come down because he loved him so much. It's no advance or growth if that sadness is demeaned or rebuked or mortified or you go to a happy, clappy, smiling preacher who smiles and smiles at everyone and expels an awareness of the power and cruelty of sin in his own life. Fourthly, it's perfectly proper that when a Christian suffers the bereavement of a family member, that there's a sense of loss that goes on and on. I remember after the death of my first wife, um, she had Alzheimer's and I nursed her for a few years and just kept her from hospital for the last uh, six weeks. She died and I, I preached at her funeral and then there was the weekend. I wasn't going to be in the house by myself. So I drove 80 miles to my one of my youngest daughter. And I was driving over the hills. There was an empty seat next to me that had never been empty. There was a passenger seat and there's always been someone. She'd never be with me again. And I howled 
and an hour later, further on, I broke and howled again. I howled to the glory of God. I had every justification from him who threw himself on the ground and wept and said, is it possible for this cup to pass from me? That's not depression, my friends. The disciples of the Lord live in hope. It's, it is hopeless grief that is wrong. When Stephen was murdered, the other Christians were broken. They made great lamentation over him. They wept at the, at the stoning of this good, brave, wise, eloquent young man. They took his body away and they buried it. The Holy Spirit stamps his approval on such tears. He meets two grieving widows, two sisters rather, two grieving sisters. And he doesn't say, come on now, pull yourselves together. He's in glory. He just cries with them. Allah doesn't cry. Buddha doesn't cry. Muhammad doesn't cry. But my Savior cries. It is quite essential for Christians to fill up, and it's quite our responsibility as pastors to encourage encourage our members to weep and weep with them. Fifthly, it's perfectly proper for our souls to bend under the stresses of living a, a Christian life in 2023. I'm talking about the trials that the world, the world doesn't have. Um, it doesn't know our God. And if we condemn... Um, all Christians who go through times of, of grief, and a, a, a melancholy feeling that accompanies them, then what do you do about your Savior? That he was called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In other words, it's not exceptional. It was not exceptional for him to, to weep as people came to him and just broke down and told him of the condition they were in. He weeps over Jerusalem's recalcitrance. He could have spread his wings over them. I would. God's sovereign love. But you would not. Man's responsibility is perfectly expressed there. He was what Luther calls the proper man. God's great definition, beckoning to another, crashing into our lives. We get a letter, we get an email, we get a phone call. Somebody knocks on the door. Your wife comes and says, you know, oh, what a, a groaning world it is. That's not being depressed. It's perfectly natural that times come into our lives when, as the psalmist says, 
iniquities against me prevailed from day to day. We're confronted with a situation of hardened unbelief. Those we love. Just to get our boys or grandsons to come to church and listen. And take the Christian message seriously. Here's a whole book in the Bible. One of the 66 and it's called Lamentations. It's not called Depressions. It couldn't be called Depressions but it could and should and has been called Lamentations. When the apostle was given some thorn in the flesh, the activity of Satan permitted by God to keep him humble because of the great experiences caught up to the third heaven. Oh, seen sights, heard words. It wasn't lawful for him to tell anyone. So glorious. The danger then of um, pride and boasting. You know. And um, God is a counterpoise because he wanted him to write a letter to Romans that a church in Jackson 2,000 years later would need. And letters to the Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. He wanted him sweet. He wanted him to be usable. He was forming him and making him. And the thorn in the flesh was given. And Paul was overwhelmed. He didn't fake it and say, well, praise the Lord anyway. He had three sessions of prayer. He spread it out before the Lord. He described how hurtful it was. And how much more useful he would be, what he could do for the Lord, how he could travel and counsel and preach and evangelize if only this thorn in the flesh was removed. And he spread it out before the Lord. There was nothing. He spread it out again, thinking of other reasons, good reasons, God-honoring reasons. There's nothing. He did it again, so longing that this should be removed from him. And the answer came, you know the answer. My grace is sufficient for you. For what I want you to do. For what I'm forming you to do. The counterpoise to all the blessings. The testing, the trials that come to us. So I'm talking to you then about this whole matter of depression. And I'm saying to you then, my first point has been this, that they didn't consider all times of prolonged heaviness or periods of being downcast as times of depression. They didn't see a serious disposition or long grief at the death of someone that was very precious to them. Or Christian sorrow that we yield to temptation. We bend under the stresses of the Christian life. They didn't say any of those was depression. They thought it was the natural Christian response to providence. And that's how we counsel people who wonder are they Christians when we walk with them and grieve with them. Secondly, then, what the Puritans judged to be the marks of depression. 
and you get such help from, from them. They didn't see it in terms they didn't see it in terms of a more exaggerated and prolonged form of grief. They didn't see it like that. Or deeper conviction. Or deeper sorrow for sin. They analyzed what they considered to be depression in these ways. Firstly, depression is something persistent. It's something that comes over you. But it's not something that comes over you and then you have a little snooze, 40 winks, and you feel better. You deal with some social and emotional problems respectfully. And then the days go by and there's a lifting. Your wife says, how are you today? I say, I'm getting over it, honey. Depression is more concentrated. It is persistent dejection. It goes on and on, far longer than the thing that triggered it off. The depressing catalyst is over. But this depression, it, it remains. You know, it's normal for the heart to break at bereavement. It did. My heart broke. Your hearts have broken at, at bereavement. It was not normal for Queen Victoria, a professing Christian, to dress in black for the next 40 years. The curtains were drawn in the royal residences. People walked around quietly, year after year. Shh, the queen is mourning. Mourning for what had happened decades earlier. She paraded her grief to Britain and the whole world. The human spirit is not made, not intended to go on like that. That is a sinful reaction to the providence of God. You know, in, in Korea, in Christian circles in Korea, if a man's wife dies, he is encouraged to wait 10 years before he marries again. Why? Why? Think of the temptation of a young man whose wife has had a heart attack and she's died at 25, and you say, oh, you've got to wait 10 years before you can marry again. It's not good for a man to be alone, the Bible says. It encourages vulnerability to temptation. You know, the Westminster Longer Catechism in its exposition of um, the Seventh Commandment, it condemns long engagements. So the Puritans considered an inordinate length of time with a heavy spirit. They considered that to be depression. Secondly, depression is immoderate. It's all out of proportion to that which has triggered it off. It is sorrowing without hope. You must have noticed or experienced uh, that a period of depression can be triggered off by something relatively small. Just some upset in a church meeting. Some tension in, in, in a family. Here's Elijah. I read it to you. The problems 
were looming up before him were not immense. He'd been on Carmel, he'd been facing 850 prophets of, of Baal, screaming, bleeding, dancing prophets. He didn't panic then. He just cried, Lord God of Israel, may it be according to thy word, vindicate thyself. And the fire fell and consumed the very water in the trench around the altar. The sacrifice was consumed and the people leaped for joy. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And the prophets of Baal were put to the sword. And when Queen Jezebel heard that, she was furious. I'll get you. She cries. And he does a runner out of the land into the wilderness. And he falls exhausted under a juniper tree in suicidal despair. And he longs for death. He cries, Lord, take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. It was an immoderate reaction. And God is not sympathetic. God doesn't come by to him and says, Ah, oh, there, there. Oh, boy. Oh, I'm sorry. And stroke him. He doesn't do that. What's wrong, dear child? God challenges him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Depression is something paramount and terminal. There is nothing in Elijah's response commensurate with the threat of an angry woman. We've known church meetings and church members, ladies who were quite angry with us in our ministry and our preaching. You might have heard this story. Um, it's Lord Jones's story. It's a wonderful story. I always love to tell it. He was preaching one afternoon in the midweek in a little town somewhere, and the elders and the minister came on to him and told him about a local school teacher who was having such a detrimental effect on on his uh, pupils very anti-Christian now, and he, he hadn't been like that. Would Dr. Lloyd-Jones talk to him after the afternoon service, before the evening service? I said, yes, I'd, I'd be pleased to do that. Um, it's a tragic case, they said to him. Um, he's become just useless in, in the church. I promised I would. So after I had had my tea, uh, this man, the schoolmaster, came to see me. I said to him, you look depressed. He was like the men on the road to Emmaus. One glance at this man told me all about him. I saw the typical face and attitude of a man who is depressed and discouraged. I said, tell me what's, what's the trouble. Well, I get these headaches, he said. I'm never free from them. I wake at one in the morning, I can't sleep too well either, and uh, I suffered with gastric pains and so on. Uh, have you always been like that? Oh, it's gone on for years. As a matter of fact, it's been going on since 1915. Ah, I'm interested to hear this. 
I said. How did you begin? Well, the war broke out in 1914. I volunteered early on and went into the Navy. And eventually, I was transferred to a submarine. And uh, we were sent into the Mediterranean, part of the Navy that was involved in the Gallipoli campaign. I was there in this submarine in the Mediterranean during the campaign, and we were engaged in action and submerged in the sea and doing all our duties, and suddenly there was a, a extraordinary bang, a thud. Our submarine shook. We'd been hit by a mine, and we were at the bottom of the Mediterranean. Well, since that day, I've never been the same. Well, tell me the rest of your story. Well, there's, there's really nothing more to add. I'll just tell you how it's happened since that time in the Mediterranean. Well, my dear friend, I said, I really would be interested to know the remainder of the story. I've told you the whole story. And this went on for some considerable time. It was part of my treatment, I said again. I really would like to know the whole story. Start at the beginning again. So he told me he had volunteered, joined the Navy, was posted to a submarine and sent to the Mediterranean and everything was all right until the afternoon when they were engaged and suddenly we were at the bottom of the Mediterranean. And I've been like this ever since. Tell the rest of the story, he said. I took him over it. And we come to that dramatic afternoon, the thud, the shaking. Down we were at the bottom of the Mediterranean. There's more to it, I said to him. You know the problem with you, you're still at the bottom of the Mediterranean. And physically, he was not, but mentally he was. He had stayed at the bottom of the Mediterranean. Uh, you know, something happened. They, they radioed a destroyer, and they sent down the divers and the cable, and they pulled the submarine up. Or you went through the escape hatch one by one, and you came home to, uh, to London, and you were in hospital for a week or two, and then you, you were fine, and back into the Navy you went. Oh, yes, she said, but I was at the bottom of the Mediterranean. It was because this man was dammed up in his mind that he had suffered from this terrible depression during all these years. I was able to tell, speak to him and explain things to him. And he was restored and he resumed his duties in the church and he went to, for ordination. Depression is acute. Depression is intense. Thirdly, depression is paralyzing. And I fear that's the trouble with people in all our congregations. A certain problem has altered their perspective, altered their values to what is really important in life and to the promises of God. And, and the provision of Almighty God. We've allowed ourselves to get immersed in what's happened and we've marginalized Almighty God and the living Savior and His presence and His help, the blessedness of the pure in heart who see God 
we see nothing now but this bad providence, and that leads us into increasing dejection. We've turned against the God who loves us, who meets our needs, who works all things together for our good, who never forsakes us. We become separated from all, all that is grand and wholesome and life-enriching. The great pick-me-ups that he gives. We're lying down, inert, and we're doing nothing. We hardly sing the hymns or we just open our lips a little bit. There's nothing left for us. We're just looking forward to death. A bleak spirit, a spirit of unbelief and depression. It destroys people. It destroys assurance. It takes away motivation and drive and energy from being steadfast and unmovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Elijah never followed up the triumph of Mount Carmel. He never consolidated the gains of that wonderful victory. He never motivated the people now to go through the land and pull down the high places and the totem poles, the asterisks that they had erected everywhere and drive the prophets of Baal out of the land and call for a national revival and reformation. Well, now, what of us? Is there some sorrow, some darkness that's cast a shadow of inertia over your life? We are figuratively speaking, lying down under a juniper tree, and we are removing ourselves from the fight. We're not even hewers of wood and drawers of water any longer. We are neglecting our local church. We are making no contribution to all that it does, all its activities, all its need of prayer. Maybe COVID came and then that was an excuse and you grabbed it and you're home and you're watching. We don't know what you watch. Perhaps a, a preacher a thousand miles away and you can turn him off whenever you want to. You were once zealous for church. You were once there morning and evening. You, you, your voice was heard in the, in the prayer meeting. Not any longer. The energy, the output, your spectators, you're paralyzed. You're living on the fringes. You're living under a juniper tree. And then you find other people in the church like you. And you all bring your juniper trees to church on a Sunday. There's a little grove <laughs> of juniper trees. And it's a rather quiet spot. Not much sound of happy praise from there. And you comfort one another because life has been so hard for you. So it is paralyzing depression. And fourthly, it shows itself in self-destructive thoughts. My fathers were failures, Elijah says. I'm a failure too. And this attitude resulted in a desire to live for life. It went. Oh, I hope that 
That's very far from any of you suicidal folk. Oh, I hope, I hope you haven't thought of self-harm. The devil sends fiery darts into your life and he says, kill yourself. Oh, how solemn. Oh, how fearful to talk about that. Thou shalt not kill. Feelings of self-destruction can erupt at these dark times in our lives. Self-pity feeds such thoughts. When people start talking about ending it all, we prick up our ears. We neglect the 99 men and women. We go and we sit with them and we talk to them and listen to them and phone them and pray with them and give them promises from the word of God. Uh, we take it very seriously. We treat such depressed people with very much kindness. It's like kissing, gentle but firm. As pastors, we neglect 50 other needy people in the congregation, and yet this one, this one. It's self-destructive. Fifthly, depression is self-deprecating. Elijah was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. You can argue, it's interesting, you know, who's the greatest baseball player? Who's the greatest singer? It's a big category, and you've got certain, so some of us say, um, Isaiah was the greatest, the greatest writing prophet. Or then the Lord Jesus, he would say, none born of women was as great as John the Baptist. He wouldn't allow an... Indian paper thing to come between himself and, and dear John. But when on the Mount of Transfiguration God brought the representative of the law, he brought Moses. And the representative of the prophets that he brought was Elijah. This man with these tremendous charismatic gifts this man who's so blessed, God heard his prayer in just a remarkable way. You think, well, for the rest of his life, he'd walk on air, abounding in the work of the Lord. And here he is, feeling totally useless. He's looking back, and he's looking around, and he says, we're all failures, aren't we, in the end? The fathers, my father, my grandfather, the people I know, we, we've just failed the Lord and we're failing the Lord still. You know, you meet people like that, don't you? You just, you hope you're not going to be going to a conference sitting in the back seat of a car with them because they're just going to pour it out. How bad things are, how difficult things are, and how depressed they are with things. Other preachers, other days, so wonderful. We lost all confidence in our usefulness and our worthiness, our validity, our call, our seriousness about bringing the living Jesus to, to people. We feel there's no point. Our self-belief is being destroyed. Well, you say, well, that's... Um, denying yourself, you know, it's, uh, that's a good, humble state 
It's not a humble spirit at all. My status is and always will be, will be for eternity. I'm a child of the king. I'm a son of God. He loves me with the same love wherewith he loves his son. I'm a joint heir. What he inherits, I'm sitting in the heavenlies at the right hand of the throne of God in him. And the gifts I have, I've been entrusted from God. The calling I had was a real calling from God. And I have to be a steward of those gifts. I have to say to myself, I'm not nothing. I've been loved from eternity. There never was a time when God didn't love me. He loved me with an everlasting love. In the beginning, he loved me. And soon I will be in a new heavens and a new earth and this little speck of time, the weaver shuttle will have come to an end and I'll see the face that was spat upon for me. I'll see the face that was, a scarf was put around it and soldiers punched away and said, prophesy now. I'll see that face. I'll hear that voice. First voice I'd hear would be his. Well done, good and faithful servant. And I'd be like him. Love so amazing, so divine. And so it makes demands. The demands are not for you to be running down yourself and discouraged and depressed, but that you give again. This bottle of clay, this clay pot. Here it is, Lord. I give it. I give you back the life I owe you. I give it to you. My life is not insignificant. You've got us a plan. Isn't that wonderful? A plan for this morning. That I should speak on this theme. That you should come. We should weigh it up in the light of Scripture and with the help of the Holy Spirit and think to save us walk in these aisles and he's sitting next to us and he's just encouraging us and rebuking us. That's what our Savior is like. So let me summarize what I've been saying to you so far, that depression is not simply serious-mindedness and the gravity that should characterize every single Christian. Depression is weakness, it is self-depreciating, it is dishonoring to God as Elijah was. It kills assurance. It disenergizes. We're not standing in the breaches. We're not leading, leading the fight to the enemy. We're not exemplifying that we are partakers of the divine nature. That's depression. Well then, thirdly, how to respond to that kind of depression. I take my life in my hands now. The Puritans had uh, such people in their congregations. Lloyd Jones had. Lloyd Jones said to me, the question he had been most asked by people was, can you recommend a Christian psychiatrist to us? 
fascinating. Well, now, our forefathers, Spurgeon, Whitfield, and Bunyan, they didn't have modern psychiatric attitudes or modern mood-changing drugs. They had a book, and it was alive and powerful, and it was able to make us capable of every single good work we would have to do day by day until glory. And it came from a compassionate and an all-knowing God who knew about 2023 and what Americans would face, American Christians would face. And they asked then, what is the biblical attitude to depression? It's the $64,000 question. And they came to this conclusion. It's wrong. Of course they recognize it was sad. Of course they knew it was a condition to be pitied. But that depression, as I've analyzed it and described it to you, is wrong. God finds fault with a depressed Christian. And every depressed Christian agrees with what I've said. If they are regenerate, they will say, I shouldn't be like this. It's not right that I'm like this. They're with me. The Christian is joined to Jesus Christ. The Christian has illimitable access to an indwelling Savior. to the Father, to the Holy Spirit. God is working all things together for his good. He's supplying all our needs. We're on our way, not, not much longer. We see it coming nearer and nearer to us. It's a day nearer than yesterday. How can we, we be depressed? Now, of course, we need to bring certain qualifications, I suppose. We know the bizarre and painful condition of postnatal depression and the time it takes for some new mothers to put their lives back together after some hormonal imbalance. Of course, of course. We recommend some Christians, we talk to them and I think this is a medical condition, you know, as an amateur, I can think that. I, have you seen the doctor about this? We can say, we know perhaps the doctor. Perhaps we can call the doctor and have a chat. Say, I've got this, this problem now with this person. What should I do about that? There are Christians that are down, and we know they've suffered multiple, multiple family bereavements. A wife has lost a strong husband. You know, he did everything. He was omnicompetent and loving. Oh, and now she's by herself. How hard it is, of course. And there are some, and they had abusive fathers. And they battled with ill health and so on. There's a certain melancholy. 
Last year, I went to Olney. That might not mean much to you, but Olney was the center of John Newton's ministry, where he lived with William Cooper. And he had a marvelous ministry to a depressed William Cooper. What did they do? Well, they kept pets, pet hares, that jumped around the house together. They loved them, animals scampering around the house. There was music that they both enjoyed. They read together. They read the same book. They'd read alternate paragraphs together. And Newton encouraged William Cooper to write poetry, to be creative, to express it. And then there was another companion, a godly woman who would sit with him in the evenings and she would engage in embroidery and chat to him. They worked in the garden. They produced fruit and vegetables. It was all oh, so healing. It was marvelously humane and compassionate, the best of treatment today for someone like that. Let's be so patient in helping limping Christians you know they phone us constantly. And sometimes they say late at night, come over, come, come to me, come now. And then you have the courage to say, no, no, I'm not coming now. I, I don't know if I can see you tomorrow. I've got a really big schedule tomorrow, but I, I'll come Friday to see you. We'll say that. And we encourage their children were bearing the burden and the guilt of, are, are they helping mum or dad with their melancholy? The biblical attitude to that, the depression, as I've described it to you, is that it is wrong. God is against it. And so you see it as the way God approaches people that are like this. He comes to Elijah. What are you doing here? What are you? You, the man of God. You, the God whose prayers I've heard. You, who I've blessed so much. You, who have triumphed over those who hate me. What are you doing lying here in a cave, under a tree? What is all this about? So disconsolate, so suicidal, distorted by immoderate, self-destructive sorrow. He says to Jonah the same thing. He says, what are you doing, Jonah, wallowing in self-pity because the good has died, and Nineveh has repented, and you're not rejoicing, but you're grumbling and distorted by sorrow. God looks at the darkness and gloom of Cain's face. Why is your countenance fallen, he said. I don't want preachers always to be smiling away at the congregation. Yuck. But I don't want to a dark-faced, depressed man to look at. God searches us. Why, he says. Why? Why are you like this? What's wrong? What's happened? And you justify being like this. But you're responsible. We're responsible for what we believe. We are responsible for our conduct. And we are responsible for our affections. Rejoice in the Lord always. 
Again I say, rejoice. And there are Christians who allow themselves to be dominated by the Spirit. They've not talked to themselves as the psalmist did. That's the first thing. You talk to yourself. Why are you like this? Why are you cast down? Why are you disquieted? Where's this rest that Jesus promises all who come to him? Why? What's wrong? You challenge yourself. That's the right response. Of course we believe in the sovereignty of grace, the compassion of our Father. He never needlessly afflicts us. Never. We submit to this God. Now I see through a glass darkly. It won't always be like that. Heaven isn't a, a place where I will be wringing my hands and wondering why, interminably troubled by certain events that hurt me so much. Face to face, he will explain what needs to be explained. Heaven, a place of joy, a place of love, a place of peace. Paul had learned in whatsoever state he was in, to be content. He learned it. He was in a prayer meeting in, one day in, in um, a certain place. An old man got up and he said, well, now let's just come to the Lord and pray. You know, I've been, I've been reading Psalm 23. It's remarkable, isn't it? Psalm 23. Uh, Lord is my shepherd. I'll not be in want. I'll never be in want because I've got this shepherd. And, you know, it's wrong for us to think we, we've been neglected by him. We should be content with all he's brought into our lives. Paul is just saying that I have learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. What a challenge it is. There are truths we, we've got to believe. Affections we must feed to thrive. There are sinful attitudes we mortify, we put to death. We don't feed them titbits to keep them alive. We kill them by the Holy Spirit. You can justify your depression. You say, ah, oh, well, you see, as a child, I was, many years ago, I was abused. My husband has been cruel to me. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I don't want to trivialize this. I'm, I'm desperately sorry for you. I'm so sorry you went through things like that. But there's a counterpoise, a heavenly father who's loved you and delivered you and helped you and been with you and guided you, provided all your needs and all your sins forgiven. He's helped you. He's strengthened you. He's kept you. You could be in the flames of hell, shrieking in agony now, but you're with the people you want to spend eternity with and you're worshipping with them. And how blessed are the ties that bind us. Some of you are reminding me of when you met me and we talked together. And I was so enlightened and delighted to have those memories restored. God has been so good. Hasn't he been so good? Yes, testings by the spoonful and blessings by the bucketful. That's... <laughs> 
That's our experience. We want to say that. I wish you had my saviour, we say, to the world and to our family. You know, there's um, a book called Spiritual Depression, which Dr. Lloyd-Jones um, wrote well. It was a series of sermons that, that he wrote, and then they added some from Philippians. And there's one sermon there that's very helpful. It's called That One Sin. You can see that, can't you? It resonates with us. The one thing that we most regret, the biggest, how we hurt someone very badly. That one sin. And he tells us how, how to deal with it. How, you know, he's a real pastor looking after. So I'm saying, how do we deal with it? Well, we say it's wrong because it's self-afflicted. We make wrong, life-changing decisions. We run out of money. Our farmer, families are unhappy. We have problems with their health. They don't find the church lifting them up. And they find other church members who are down in the dumps from making decisions. And they come together and they grumble. We self-inflicted depressives. So the basic attitude towards depression is, it's wrong. It is wrong. Let me give you some reasons, hopefully, why it's wrong. It dishonors the Lord Jesus. Let's make it a Christocentric problem I have, my depression. Let me see it now. Let me bring him, my prophet, priest, king, my friend, my saviour, my omnicompetent, omnipresent, omnipowerful, almighty one. And I'm neglecting him. And I'm preoccupied with what's happened to me. You know, we sing our hymns and we say in our hymns, I'm satisfied with Jesus Christ. I want all Jackson to know. I'm content. I'm a sinner and Jesus loves me. And he keeps me and he watches over me. And the Christian life is a wonderful life. It's a stable life. It's a contented life. It's a strong life. And I have resources that the world knows nothing about. They know about drugs, and they know about drink, and they know about entertainment, and they certainly know about relationships. But they don't know the one who says, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. They know nothing about him. We have a peace that passes all understanding. It's hard to describe it. It's rich. We pick ourselves up. He picks us up. We dust ourselves down and we get on. At the end of every day, we say, sorry, Lord. Sorry. I'm, I need mercy. I need the blood again to cleanse this day from my sin. Be with me tomorrow. So just roll it out before him like that. The world doesn't see that. Workmates don't see our relationship with Jesus. Everything outside of Christ is vanity. 
And when you say to me, I can't cope, of course you can't cope. But you can do all things through Christ. You can. You can. All that he brings into your life. He never tries and tests us above that we're able to bear. And always with a way, there's a way of escape. And we can handle it. You can cope. You can. The word of God says that, so it's true. You can cope with the particular trial that you're in now in 2023. You know, when you were young in the youth group and the first fruits of the Savior and your meetings on Friday and the summer camps you went to and the group you met in InterVarsity or Reformed University Fellowship, whatever, oh boy, weren't they great days, weren't they great days, happy people. Uh, don't go looking for the depressives and pour out your heart to them. Go to the Savior. Go to him. Ask the Savior to help you, comfort, strengthen, and keep you. He is willing to aid you. He'll carry you through. He will. It's not your jingle. It's the deepest reality. What's coming from your congregations? Is it, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me? Is that the song in the tabernacles of the righteous in Mississippi? No, it's not. How will you say to you, what will you say to your Savior when you stand before him? The great day of evaluation about these years when you caved in, when you limped, He will say, but didn't I say those that wait upon me will renew their strength? They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. And that verse wasn't for Spurgeon or Whitfield or Luther or Augustine. It was for you, little Christian, and for me. There are places of strength in the presence of Jesus Christ, but you can't find strength anywhere else. Depression is wrong because it is always a reactive state, and there's always a better reaction. It's not a tendency, it's a selfish reaction. It's a withdrawing reaction. It's a reaction to the circumstances of this day, to this telephone call, to this email, to the news you've just had. There's always a better way, and always a better way. One possibility is for you to get depressed, that's it. Another possibility is you to look at it and see its beginnings and know where it's going to take you and say, get out of my life. Get out of my fellowship. Why are you getting cast down now? Why? It's only a possibility. There's always a better way. You know, there's the possibility of our own sin. We can paint the most gloomy picture of our own condition. I'm a converted man. I'm the most 
monumental, calamitous moral and spiritual failure. I fail as a father, I fail as a husband, I fail as a grandfather, I fail as a friend, I fail as a church member, I fail as a pastor, preacher, I fail in leading the church of God, I fail in my pastoral advice, I fail in my testimony on my street to my physical neighbors, I fail in my devotional life, I fail in every relationship and at every personal level of my life. And the close of every day, there's not one thing that I can look back on with, with any pleasure. And I can say to myself, what a shambles it's all been, how irrelevant my life is. The best I've done has been mixed with selfishness and plagiarism and shortcuts and ego. And I can look back at the end of a day and I can work myself up into the most appalling depression. Lord, take away my life. And in spite of myself, I'm sinking and going down and down. There is always a better way. There's a better possibility than finding where's the nearest juniper tree and lying down under it. What can I do? I can go to the throne of grace. And there sitting, the king of love. And he smiles and he smiles forever. Like Hodge put the, the knob on his study really low down so that his five and six-year-olds could reach it and go in any time and he'd gladly see them. And here is a father in heaven and oh, he loves us and he welcomes us and he smiles and smiles forever because we are in Christ. Go back to the cross. That's where the burden falls off our backs, where he dealt with the subtle, clever sins of preachers. The subtle sins. We, we're masters at hiding our, our true selves from people. The sins of omission. All those sins, everyone he's taken. He's descended us. Totally. We go to the mercy seat. There's a way back to God always. From the dark paths of sin. There's a door that's open. And we can go in. The Calvary's cross is where we begin. And we go. We keep going. We keep going. Sinner. To a Savior who loves repentant. I mean sinners. Depression is caused by sin. And you can fill your life with vain regrets. I could make a list of the people I've hurt. Huge list. I can imagine their faces. I can look at gaps in my knowledge. And foul things I can't tell anyone about. And missed opportunities. And I can just lie down. Or I can do with my past, with what God has done, and forget the things that are bad. Gift. It's the evil one who gives me a snorkeling kit and sends me down into the depths of the sea to look for what I've done in the past and reminds me of it. The Savior never, never. I can't pay the penalty. He can. 
I can't wipe the slate clean. Every speck, every speck is cleaned away. My regrets are vain. You know, as an 84-year-old, I look back to what I did at 18. And I load those ugly, carnal, 18-year-old actions with all <laughs> the significance of an 84-year-old preacher and how they grieve me now. But I know a place where sins are washed away. I know a place where night is turned to day. Burdens are lifted, blind eyes made to see. And the wonder-working power of the blood of Calvary. I can see it. Isn't that wonderful? We've got one who puts things right and who forgives. Goes on loving us and loving us. You've got some prayer friends. Just call them. Share things with them. Some things, many things with your wife. and You pray together at the beginning of the day and you can... You're doing too much, perhaps, you know. Break down your, your workload. His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. There, in a lifting up of the downcast, you know, the book on depression that's written by William Bridge. There are 12 sermons there. And the last sermon is called The Cure for discouragement, faith in Jesus Christ. Look to him, believe in him. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A mighty fortress is our God. Let's love him, let's serve him. Let's be renewed. Let's cast off this spirit. Let's know the assurance. I'm glory bound. I want my life to count for Jesus. Ah, oh, may it count. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us now. Oh, how easy for me to speak on these things. How hard when you're in the valley. Oh, Lord, in your mercy, in your grace, help each one of us. Some here have just said, Amen, that's me. Oh, but, but they may also say, Amen, it's you. You here, you to the wonderful counselor. The counselor who takes your breath away. The counselor who gives you goose pimples. The counselor who's so wonderful. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving me everlastingly. Help me to live ever only all. Nearer, nearer, clearer and clearer. With Jesus, my Savior, we ask in his name. Amen. May we stand.